This is Ruthie King. Um, I've got the Farm and Garden Show coming up with my co-host, Darcy, and we've got a really wonderful guest waiting for us on the air, Lucy Kramer from The Gardens Project. Um, today's show is going to be addressing issues of access in Mendocino. And the Farm and Garden Show listeners um, certainly aren't all landowners with um, abundant capital. I recognize that many people farming and gardening are, gardening are scrapping it together. And um, some of the biggest challenges to farmers and gardeners are land access, um, access to food security, access to capital, and access to training. So um, we'd like to make some announcements before we get into our interview today. And I've got Darcy on the line to help me with announcements. Darcy, thanks for being here. Yeah, and a part of that access is access to getting a product. And there's an event um, called the Kitchen to Market Get the Edge on November 10th um, at the West Business Development Center in Fort Bragg. And uh, it says here that they'll be covering kitchen to market licensing fees, certifications necessary to get started, the planning and production process, capitalization options and contacts to help you get started current and future industries, trends, creative marketing ideas, and more. The instructor will be Annie Menuzo is... She is a specialty food expert with over 30 years of experience in the food beverage industry, 20 of which were spent owning a wholesale bakery company. She has a broad network of professional associations in this exciting industry, along with trending hands-on expertise. Um, and it seems like a really great opportunity for people to get their experience with uh, production of food in a kitchen space and um, value-added products that come out of the kitchen. Um, and the event is presented by the West Business Development Center that is on November 10th, and it is free in North in Fort Bragg. And I believe it's going to be a Zoom workshop, so even if you're not in Fort Bragg, that sounds like a great... It sounds like a really great opportunity to learn about taking care. Um, when maybe maybe you have a passion for for cooking, or you have a special recipe, and you'd like to take it to the next level. Um, so that's really great. We've got um, access to some training, even in this time when we can't be gathering for workshops. And another opportunity for access to training uh, is going to be hosted by Ecology Action um, for their famous three-day workshop. So the three-day workshop this year is going to be held over three consecutive Saturdays. That's November 7th, 14th, and 21st, also via Zoom. They'll be discussing topics ranging from seed starting, compost building, and harvesting, all the way to more technical fare like diet design and how it relates to garden planning. This workshop provides a strong introduction to the grow biointensive method of farming, which uses less water and less space than conventional gar gardening and farming, and results in higher yields and nutritive content. So you can get more information and register now at www.growbiointensive.org and start a new chapter in your sustainable life today. Again, that's going to be November 7th, 14th, and 21st um, via Zoom. So those are two great options for access to training in our county. Um, and let's see, we've got um, access to capital. This is a really important one for so many people who are trying to get started in farming or gardening, um, or even people who are just impacted by um, the difficulties of being in this 
in this profession and trying to make a living at it um, in a really rural area, especially, and given environmental disasters. And um, there are some really amazing organizations out there um, that are focused on supporting our farmers and gardeners through um, through difficult economic times. And so this is a really exciting moment. Today is going to be the opening of the Good Farm Fund grant program. This year, the Good Farm Fund will provide the largest round of farm grant funding, funding in their history. So $80,000 will be granted to local farms and ranches this year. Um, this is through the Good Farm Fund. And this funding is really thanks to the County of Mendocino and North Coast Opportunity for coronavirus relief funding. Um, and the goal of these Good Farm Fund grants is to provide economic development assistance for small food producers in Mendo and Lake Counties and increase access to fresh local food in our community's food system. So as I said, applications are going to be opening today and will be due on November 23rd for the Farm Grant Program. Um, uh, let's see, any more information about the Good Farm Fund? The website, um, that's probably the most important piece of information, is www.goodfarmfund.org. The application will be uh, posted today, and I would recommend getting a start on it um, and um, thinking about what are, the, what are the financial needs that your farm needs to launch into the next phase and to produce more food, um, maximize food production, provide affordable food for your community, and even apply environmentally beneficial farming or ranching practices. So I think we've got another another access to capital funding opportunity that Lucy's going to be announcing for us also via North Coast Opportunities. Sure, thanks Ruthie. Yeah, so um, this is not specific to uh, farmers and gardeners. Um, anyone who has had um, financial hardship because of our dual crises in our county, the pandemic or the fires. Um, North Coast Opportunities People Helping People program can provide um, financial assistance and um, assistance for basic needs um, for anyone who's been financially impacted by um, either COVID or, or the recent fires. Um, the way to apply is by calling the um, disaster assistance hotline. The phone number there is 707-621-8817. And uh, a case manager will be able to determine your eligibility and, and see how North Coast Opportunities can help you. Um, this is uh, funded through the Community Foundation. Awesome. We're really fortunate to live in a county that is so focused on increasing access. Um, and so one of the programs that's been going for for many years is the Community Gardens Project through NCO, focusing on increasing access to land and space for food production. And that's what the bulk of our show is going to be about today. I'm going to start us off with a little short about the Gardens Project of North Coast Opportunities, um, and then we'll get to hear directly from Lucy Kramer, Project Coordinator at the Gardens Project. NCO Gardens Project builds community one garden at a time. Over the past 12 years, Gardens Project has successfully built 55 community gardens across Mendocino and Lake Counties using the community ownership model. 
Every garden is community-owned, community-operated. Gardens Project is a program of North Coast Opportunities, a community action agency celebrating our 50th year of supporting healthier, more vibrant, and prosperous communities in Mendocino and Lake Counties. Gardens Project partners with developers, nonprofits, agencies, private landowners, and local governments to develop underutilized land into publicly stewarded, food-producing green space. These gardens, in turn, improve the social, environmental, emotional, physical, occupational, spiritual, and intellectual health of the more than 3,500 community gardeners Gardens Project supports. In addition to these benefits, community gardens forge intergenerational and cross-cultural relationships. They provide space to build cultural capital through community organizing, creating spaces where neighbors engage with one another to build resiliency. Community gardens improve the safety of neighborhoods by creating public accountability over shared green space, forging spaces where community can claim ownership over their land and create neighborhood watches to keep undesirable crime at bay with reduced reliance on public services. My name is John Duffy and uh, I live in Autumn Leaves and this is my garden. I have uh, 1,800 square feet of full sun garden, all vegetables, no chemicals. The whole purpose of the garden is to give the food away to people in need and myself, of course. Community gardens incorporated into neighborhoods provide defensible barriers against the natural disasters our communities will continue to face due to climate change, while simultaneously trapping carbon dioxide in the soil to mitigate the devastating effects of climate change. Community gardens provide dignified and empowering access to healthy, fresh, culturally appropriate, and desirable food. Community gardens provide a way to see the vision of community action fully realized. NCO continues to provide various programs for the community to be strengthened and has been proud to support the gardens project since its beginning. Leadership training is a critical component Gardens Project incorporates into community garden development. The ongoing staff support we provide is building the next generation of leaders in our community. The majority of the community garden volunteer managers are women who have the opportunity to take a leadership role for the first time in their life. Every community garden in the Gardens Project network operates under a cooperative model. This means every gardener pays the same affordable rate of 30 cents per square foot of gardening space. These dues cover access to a personal garden plot, water, compost, organic seeds and plant starts, tools, drip irrigation, access to free workshops on organic gardening models, leadership classes on community garden management, and consultation services from Gardens Project staff and volunteers. Every community gardener is invited to apply for a scholarship to cover their plot fee. This fund is made possible by generous community donors and from the sale of our bilingual cookbook. You can support the growth of community gardens by visiting our website, www.gardensproject.org. That was a lovely video. I wish that all of our listeners could have seen it. I was watching it, and those gardens are so beautiful. The other wonderful thing um, about the Gardens Project is just, it, not only are their garden our gardens really beautiful, but their merch is really beautiful. And if our listeners could see what I was wearing today, they would see the Gardens Project shirt that I'm repping underneath my I Voted sticker. And um, I'm just really proud to be um to be a fan of the Gardens Project, and I'm really excited to have our guest on the air today, Lucy Kramer. Welcome to the show. 
Thank you, Ruthie. I know I um, I love that video too. We we put a lot of thought into into the image, um, but I do think that um, just the audio actually it it holds well just with the audio as well. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, um, and just a tiny correction from that video. So that was created in 2019, and um, most of the information in it is, of course, still accurate. We still um, operate as a, a cooperative of um, communally owned and operated community gardens. We still are providing leadership trainings and uplifting folks who maybe wouldn't have otherwise had um, the opportunity to be in a leadership role in the past. Still, of course, supporting food security. Most of the things in that video are accurate. The one inaccuracy is that it says that we have 55 community gardens. It's true at the time. Now I'm proud to say that we have uh, 56 and a half because we are building a brand new one in um at moose lodge in lake county wow that's so many gardens <laughs> i know I, I i see i see a lot of gardens when i drive around ukiah but there are so many that are tucked into the little corners all around that city and all around the whole county um and yeah yeah and actually both lake and mendocino counties and um most of the gardens are in Mendocino County um, because we were founded in Mendocino County, but we expanded to Lake County um, a few years ago. I think that was six years ago. Um, and so now there are gardens there as well within our network. Um, and we I'm sure that we'll get into this when we talk about how we provide equitable access to land and water. But our objective when we when we develop a new garden is always to foster that community ownership model, which you know, means autonomy. And so um, eventually, so we have kind of tiers of um, tiers of access to services or tiers of reliance on services from Gardens Project. So even though it is 57 gardens, the newest ones need a lot of our attention. We work really closely with about 15 of those gardens and the rest are um, functioning pretty independently they're really successful that's um you know that's really how we determine the success when um of a garden because we are founded in principles of um community empowerment so once a garden becomes independent then we know we've done our job well very cool so what's the process then for starting the new like the new garden that you're starting at the moose lodge what what is that timeline gonna kind of look like yeah, that's a great question. And actually, it's a good moment to plug over this past year, um, we created a webinar. It's called How to Start a Community Garden. And that's what it's about. <laughs> and um, in that, and it's on our YouTube channel. But um, so the process of establishing a community garden, you know, we um, we take direction from the community itself. We're, we're never going to come to a place and say, you all need a garden and we're going to tell you exactly what you need you know we can we can consult based on what we've we've seen as successes in other communities but um but we really wait for folks to come to us and say hey we think that we have a good spot for a garden or we think that we would benefit from a garden hmm. um because we so we work for a community action agency which um our mission is to alleviate the root causes of poverty we're most likely to develop a garden in an impoverished neighborhood, but also a neighborhood um, where, you know, vulnerable populations live. And that can, you know, look like a lot of things. We have 
veterans gardens. You know, we have gardens in low-income neighborhoods. We have gardens where um, the majority of people um, are are people of color or are um, non-English speakers. Um, we really, you know, we we purposefully have a um, an ambiguous definition of vulnerable populations so that we can adapt to the community needs that we see. So anyway, usually how it works, so how it's working at Moose Lodge is that, um, you know, Moose Lodge has acted as an evacuation center for years with, you know, the fires that have plagued Lake County. And they approached us and said, you know, we really think that we would benefit from a community garden, especially in times when people are evacuated and and staying here. We think that the horticultural therapy would be beneficial to people in those high stress times. We think that um, the added food security, being able to harvest from a garden, you know, as we know from the trends, fires often happen during harvest season. You know, it's like we see things in August, September, October, which is also when the gardens are so prolific. Mm. So they came to us with that thought. And we've been working with them over the past um, year and a half or so to first, you know, get community input. We, um, you know, have been and communicating with uh, community partners to to get some buy-in, and then creating creating a design and a preliminary budget of what it's going to cost to build the infrastructure. Um, consulting with um, the people on site who are going to be managing the garden once it's you know once it's there and ready. And then we um, connected with a funder um, who actually it's, it's so generous, but they, they want to be anonymous, which is amazing. Um, and they put in, um, I think it was like $25,000 um, to build this garden. Those funds are being, you know, those funds are only being used um to build up this garden. Wow. Then once the garden is built, um, it usually takes about five years for a garden to actually develop that autonomy. And it's through, you know, leadership trainings and relationship building and, and resource mapping. But over those first five years, Gardens Project um, will, you know, support in um, providing financial literacy for the garden itself, you know, doing some basic budgeting, um, things like that to be planning for the future, supporting with goal setting for the garden, um, helping we distribute uh, free plant starts and seeds. We coordinate compost deliveries. You know, a lot of the, the logistics of keeping a garden running as well as um, providing consultation and, and leadership training. Um, you know, the the work of managing a community garden is is both, you know, ensuring the biological success of the garden that food keeps pumping out, but also often the trickier thing is the community organizing and ensuring that all of the gardeners within the garden, um, you know, understand the expectations and feel happy and heard and um, see the impact of of their work in the garden um, and also get those direct benefits. Wow, that kind of holistic model for empowering the community to to take it on over over five years or so is so interesting and powerful and and I'm sure can be you know 
used as a template in so many other fields. But I love that you guys, you know, do a lot of the, the hard legwork of getting the funding and getting that initial infrastructure built up, but that empowering a community doesn't, doesn't start with just an injection of money and then walking away. It sounds like you do a lot of support and training and and um, and helping the people who are there to take over the management, um, but not expecting them to just do it overnight, which makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and I think we see in a lot of communities that sort of like there's a desire to help. And so people will throw money at it and kind of, you know, say it's your job now to to manage it well. And that expectation seems really unrealistic. So. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And um, also to a, an off-air point, a small conversation we were having prior to coming on air, um, a lot of gardens go through, you know, ebbs and flows where a garden is really successful and prolific. And then, you know, a few years down the line, it becomes a little bit forgotten. And I bring that up just to say that even those gardens that are, you know, that reach that independence and, and are operating autonomously, then if, you know, a few years down the line, if they um, find that they that they need assistance again and want to come back, you know, under our wing, that, that door is always open. And that happens occasionally. And um, often if a garden has been autonomous in the past, it, it takes less work to, to reestablish that autonomy. But I just want to point out that it's not like we abandon the gardens after after they establish those good systems. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And um, the gardens project has now been running for 13 years, I guess that's if we, we heard the video and, or maybe it's 12 years. Uh, 13 years now. Yeah. It was 2007 that it started. And, um, and so you've been working with the gardens project for a few years. Can you give us a little background on, on who you are and and how you came to be um, working with the gardens project? Sure. Yeah. Thanks. So, um, yeah, I've been with the Gardens Project for almost three years. I, I started as an AmeriCorps Vista, um, and my background, I've, I've always been interested in, uh, in food, in food justice. Um, well, actually I should say I started my interest in, in food systems, um, through the lens of, of conservation when I was in, um, high school, I, you know, I um, was president of my gardening club at my high school, and I had this incredible professor or teacher who um, <laughs> he actually, I, I took an elective course with him on um, animal liberation, and he was, um, he's a pretty, like, righteous guy, and so at that time when I was you know, 15 and 16, um, I, I became vegan and I was really interested in, um, conservation and having a low, you know, having a small carbon footprint from, from my diet and my dietary choices. And, you know, that kind of angle that those experiences kind of led me to, to fall backwards into understanding the, the human implications of, of the food system, how, how not only are, can animals be exploited and land be exploited and, um, the climate be exploited, but, but also that there's, that people can be exploited and that there are necessary changes to, um, developing a, a just food system in our world. <laughs> so, 
so I started through like, well, I'm vegan, so check that off the list. Um, there's nothing else that I need to do. Maybe suggest that my friends become vegan as well. And then really took a more holistic um, look at the food system and, and what I wanted to see from the food system. Um, when I went to, to college, I was at the University of Pacific in Stockton. Um, Stockton is, is one of the most diverse cities in the country. And while I was there, I actually, um, I was president of a different garden club, first in high school and then in college, and um, helped to develop a new garden on campus. And through being president of that club, I, um, I organized uh, local garden tours. We went to one farm called the Boggs Track Community Farm, um, which really opened my eyes. That was um, a farm that was built in one of the most um, impoverished and um, and actually pretty um, dangerous neighborhoods um, in Stockton. It had it was kind of just a thoroughfare for some things that were you know really challenging. There were also a lot of um, families living near that farm and. During my time um, volunteering on that farm, I just I saw this neighborhood point of pride develop in this neighborhood that, you know, prior to the farm, the people living there, they didn't feel proud to be in that neighborhood. They didn't feel like they had something to, you know, to leave their house and go on a walk to and just enjoy. And they, they didn't have access to a lot of um nature or or things to enjoy that are green <laughs> so so it really was an opportunity for me to understand that you know the a garden is worth it's you know it's worth so much more than the sum of its parts it's worth so much more than just the food that's being pumped out of it like it it really um just having access to that land is um it can completely change people's psyche and and their um i mean really how they how they identify with with their spaces. Um, then I moved up to Mendocino County. Um, I worked um, for Ecology Action, learning the biointensive method um, as a first in the office as a data manager, and then um, as an apprentice, um, just developing a holistic understanding of of cultivating my food. It was really important to me that I I understood like the cycles of a year. Um, in a garden. And then um, after the end of that one-year apprenticeship, I applied for the gardens project position through AmeriCorps Vista. And I was really confident um, that I wanted to work at gardens project. I had, I had heard about this organization. Um, I wanted to be there. <laughs> and luckily they wanted me there too. <laughs> so that was uh, two and a half years ago. And um I've been at the project ever since, and um, now I'm a coordinator for for Gardens Project, and feel very passionate about the about the work we do. Awesome, yeah. Thank you. I'm really curious about um, like what land access, like tangibly, what the Gardens Project has done for land access for people of color. Yeah, I'm curious about that. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So, um, so we work with um, with local governments. We work with 
you know, the counties, Lake Amendo, we work with um, city governments as well. And we work with private landowners to, um, to lease or borrow or <laughs> um, gain access to land that we then, um, you know, we, we, sorry, I'm trying to think of how to word this, but, um, you know, we take land that was previously privatized um, and we create contracts with the landowners so that it can become publicly stewarded. So some of our gardens we lease, generally our leases are negotiated to be really affordable, a dollar a year, which is amazing. Or we have um, memorandums of understandings with the landowners. And then once Gardens Project um, holds those contracts to be you know, managing the land, um, you know, then we can we can turn around and, and share it with the community. Um, so that's kind of you know part of our job is is overseeing multiple lease agreements and and contracts that way. Um, and then everyone, every gardener within the network of gardens um, does pay pay dues to be within to be cultivating their plot. Mm -hmm. um, there, we we ensure that the garden plot fees are really, really affordable. The average gardener in one of our gardens pays $33 for a year for full access to the garden. That includes access to water, compost, seeds, plant starts, tools, you know, the land itself, um, some security measures, our services. It, it really includes a lot for, for a rate that we work hard to keep affordable. Right. Um, so then I, I remember you mentioned mm -hmm. the cents per square foot. So what does that, what does that provide? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so 70% of dues go into an account that is a, um, water cooperative. So if someone pays, Wait, I don't want to do this math. I'm sorry. 70% of dues go into a cooperative for water. And so what we've seen, so for example, there are two gardens in Ukiah that are a block and a half apart from each other. One of the gardens, we have a lease agreement and um, the water bill for that account, for that garden is, you know, upwards of $300 a month. Block and a half over, there is... Um, it's a privately owned piece of land with a garden on it. We have an MOU with the landowner. Um, that garden, there's a well. So that garden has $0 for their water bill. So that 70% of dues go into, it goes into a cooperative account so that we can pay out the water bills equally. It wouldn't be fair. It's not equitable. It doesn't make sense for one garden to have you know, their plot fee be, you know, $200 for the year or whatever, when a couple blocks over, it's $10 for a year. So, um, yeah, so that cooperative is, is designed to, to maintain that equitable access. It's, you know, people are really sharing the same services and, and having the same experience. It doesn't make sense um, for some to pay so much more. Um, that other 30% goes into individual garden accounts. 
So every single garden has established an account and um, the monies in that in those accounts um, is used for like infrastructural updates to gardens um, or really, I mean, whatever the gardens decide. If, if a garden has $300 in their bank account and they come to me and they say, you know what, we want to spend that money on a party because we want to feel, you know, more connected to each other, we would say, okay, if that's what everyone in the garden wants, you have that autonomy over your money. Um, as far as the other services that are included, so that money from that 70%, it goes into a water cooperative. Basically, that's kind of all it covers for now. Um, but by being in that cooperative, we also ensure access to plant start seeds, um, our staff services, um, the our coordination of the compost delivery and, you know, and other deliveries and also our services with uh, fundraising and grant seeking. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And especially the, you know, finding a way to distribute the cost of water across the whole gardens project is a really wonderful way of making that um, equitable. I wanted to ask a little bit more about the population that you serve. And Darcy was asking this, this question as well, serving people of color. Mm -hmm. And I heard in the video, a few references to, um, to these gardens, giving people the ability to grow culturally appropriate food. And that was, you know, it sort of, to me, triggered this, this, this realization that, you know, so many of our farm workers are Latinx population and, with you know our farm workers don't own land themselves um but that these gardens give them the opportunity to um to grow their own food and particularly culturally appropriate food so i'm hoping you can give us a little overview of the populations that the gardens project serves yeah yeah thank you and i'm sorry darcy i didn't mean to not answer that part of your question um yeah so the majority of the gardeners within um within the community gardens are Latinx community members. Um, the population of Ukiah is, um, I'm not gonna remember this exactly, but it's something like 36% Latino. And within our gardens, it's um, nearly 70% Latino people cultivating the gardens. Um, and I mean, one of the things, <laughs> sort of just an anecdote, but um, one of the reasons why I'm so charmed by the gardens is um, every single garden has its own personality, gardenality, maybe. Aww. Anyway. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> okay. Anyway, um, but one of the things that we see, especially in these gardens that are, um, you know, so um, that have so many Latino people in them is that, you know, you walk into the garden and even if the even if the gardeners aren't there, um, you can see their culture shining through in um, the crops that they that they choose to cultivate. So, you know, if you go into the State Street Garden, which is um, more than 90% Latino people, it's all tomatillos and cilantro and tomatoes and corn and um, all the of nopales. these. Uh, I know that the nopales, nopales are yeah. enormous. <laughs> yeah, you can see those from far away. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, and so um, you know what I've what I've seen is that when people have access to land that they you know that they can choose what to grow, they 
they cultivate crops that are culturally relevant to um, to them, to their heritage. And that's not something that we dictate. We don't tell people, well, you know, you should be growing this, that, or the other thing. People, you know, of course, have their, their choice of what they grow. But um, that book that I was mentioning, again, off um, off air, that um, book Black, White, and Green by Alison Hope Alcon, which is just an incredible narrative about uh, the connections between race and the green economy. Um, one of the things that the author outlines in that book is um, is that very thing that when people have have the choice of what they can grow, that their heritage shines through. Um, one of my friends is um, he is a is a black farmer in the Central Valley we were talking about our gardens together and I was like, yeah, like I have beets and cabbage and like things that are relevant to my cultural heritage. My grandmother grew up as a um, cabbage farmer in Norway and those are the things that she grew. And I didn't make a conscious choice of emulating my heritage there, but I did. And he was telling me, oh, like I'm growing black eyed peas and collard greens. And I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> what a, a cool moment of like, neither of us intentionally growing things, these things that were so culturally relevant. And yet, you know, here we are. And especially, you know, in Mendocino County, there's limited access in the grocery stores to, to foods that are really culturally relevant um, to Latino people. And I mean, there, there is some access, but it's just, it's less accessible and often um, there's a higher price for culturally relevant food for Latino people. And by having access to the gardens, they, you know, cultivate it themselves. It's, it really is um, a dignified way to have access to to affordable, affordable food and also food that's culturally relevant. Yeah. So a- access not only to to land, it seems like that that's an obvious benefit that the gardens project gives access to land um, to people who don't who aren't um, who aren't landowners that is a really wonderful gift to give the community, but then the opportunity to to grow food that is relevant, to grow food that is, that, you know, maybe these people um, have a lot of background in growing and growing their own food and growing food from where they come from. And, um, and sometimes I've heard also, you know, it seems like people being able to grow foods that remind them of home, it, you know, that's, that can be a therapeutic thing too. Um, we talk about gardening therapy and it's not just the therapy of putting your hands in the soil which is definitely therapy but the therapy of growing foods that remind you of people or of places that are far away Mm -hmm. yeah and and to your earlier point as well a lot of um a lot of the people who are are recent immigrants um most of them that i've spoken with at least the ones within the gardens um, they had land where they were before, and they were, you know, avid gardeners on land that they owned. Um, and, you know, and many of them were farmers and managed their own farms and, you know, re- resettling or, or moving into a, to a totally new community where they have maybe a different socioeconomic standing than they had had in, you know, their previous lives. Um they no longer would have had access to that land. So I've heard from so many gardeners, like, 
I'm like, whoa, where did you get this corn seed? And they're like, I saved it from my farm back in Mexico that I don't have anymore. So yeah, to your earlier point, a lot of a lot of the people in the gardens used to have access to land that they owned. And um, without these gardens, they wouldn't have that autonomy. And so here we are in 2020 and um, everything has changed, it seems, this year. Um, and I'm sure things have changed for a gardens project, although it does seem like um, the mission and background of gardens project really set you up well to address a lot of the issues in 2020. Um, so tell us about how the, the beginning of the pandemic and the earlier this year, how, um, the gardens project sort of addressed that through victory gardens and, and that movement. And, um, and then we'll kind of move throughout the year and see how things have shifted for, for you and for gardeners, um, as the pandemic went on. Yeah, thanks. You know, one of the things this this year has obviously posed so many challenges but there there are certainly some silver linings and and early on one silver lining that we saw was um increased motivation to for for people to be cultivating and and growing food um and you know some of that was influenced by by fear but a lot of it was um you know some excitement just to to develop a new skill I mean, geez, like in March and April, everyone wanted a new hobby. A lot of people's new hobbies were gardening. So um, we we really saw a resurgence in people wanting to learn to grow food, wanting access to the community gardens. Um, so that was great. And it's, of course, something that we wanted to foster. When we, you know, first learned about the shelter-in-place order in March, um, we did have questions about, you know, well, these these gardens, which we're seeing as something that's really important, it's important for people to continue to have access to the horticultural therapy that they enjoy in their gardens. It's important for people to continue to have access to their food. But it's it. We were really concerned about okay, well, but these are shared spaces, and you know, is it dangerous for us to keep the gardens open because you know, are people going to to give each other COVID in the gardens? And, you know, we did a lot of research and at that time there wasn't a lot of, of data on COVID. We, we weren't really sure. Um, but after extensive research and a million conversations with, with different experts, different people managing parks departments and things like that, we decided that the gardens needed to stay open um, and that we would have to have new procedures in place to keep them safe and to keep the gardeners safe. So we distributed um, disinfectants to all of the different gardens. We sent a letter out to everyone about, you know, a new code of conduct for the garden, limiting um, the capacity of the garden. We said, you know, no more than five people could be in the garden at a time. And one person could be in the tool shed at a time, one person in the greenhouse at a time. Um, and disinfect all of your shared surfaces before and after use. This was prior to um, the awareness that masks were important. So later on, we we updated um, our recommendations to include that that everyone wear a mask in the gardens. And and then what we found was that you know people wanted our services more than ever. And so as part of our 
new Victory Garden response, we um, we digitized our seed library. We for years maintained a, a free seed library in our office. But the way that, you've, that people have had access to it is they they come to our office, they come inside, and they grab any seeds they want, or we visit the gardens and hand people seeds. That was something that wasn't really going to work this year, but people wanted the seeds more than ever. So we digitized that resource and ended up mailing packets of seeds to hundreds of people. We we mailed out um, more than 2,000 packets of seeds. And then we did a similar thing with our plant starts. Um, we didn't have an online order form, but we were distributing plant starts um, throughout the county as sort of a curbside pickup um, style. Um, those are all free. We um, um, we distributed miniature gardens. <laughs> they were half wine barrel gardens um, filled with soil and plant starts to um, to seniors, to people who are most medically vulnerable to the pandemic. Um, with the idea of bolstering, you know, in a small way, bolstering their food security um, at their own home. So we dropped this off to people's homes. And then we published that webinar that I mentioned earlier on how to how to grow a community garden, because suddenly our phones were ringing off the hook. All of these different people were saying, we want a community garden. Like we have this spot, we have all of this momentum. You know, so many people wanted to build community gardens and we didn't have the capacity to go out and build 25 new community gardens and so we open source provided the resources um so that people could could build their own and as the it sounds like an amazing response right off the bat i know you were so busy um in the first couple of months um trying to trying to figure out how to provide all the services and and provide even more services than before um given the new situation. And and as the pandemic progressed through this year, we have found that coronavirus um, is particularly hard hit in the communities with people of color. And so I'm looking at the numbers today of the total 1,176 cases in Mendocino County, 738 of those cases are in the Latinx population. And so we're finding that disproportional, um, disproportionate effect in in the communities that the gardens project also works with. And so can you talk about how, how the coronavirus has been um, impacting your gardeners um, in specifically, you know, in the, the Latinx population? Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's been, I mean, that's been really hard. Um, we, we do have a, a good procedure in place so that people don't, catch COVID in the gardens, but um, obviously we can't control things outside of the gardens. And, and we have had, um, you know, many, many of our gardeners have, um, have contracted COVID at this point. Um, when they contract it, we, of course, I mean, they're on isolation order, so, so they're not um, allowed to come into the gardens, but um, a couple months ago, um, we learned that one of the gardeners, um, one of our gardeners did um, die from COVID. He was, um, he was an elder with, um, 
he was medically fragile and um he got it at work he was a farm worker um which you know really kind of reinforced our vision and mission that you know what we're what we're here doing is is trying to address and and you know change the food system but um that was something that it was it was shocking um and devastating and you know we were in close communication with uh the family of that gardener and the the other gardeners within that garden who have who had of course grown close with this person um were were devastated and they were they were scared and so folks needed you know kind of a space to to talk about it um and we're able to do that with with each other and then um his garden his plot is being memorialized um for the rest of this season his um well for the rest of the summer season his his garden was planted with flowers and then um we come spring we are going to um develop an altar in that garden to remember him um so yeah that has been really challenging one of one of the things that has um heartwarming about the bonds that people in the gardens have is that for that person and also for the other people in different gardens who um have contracted covid the gardeners have come together to ensure that the people can effectively isolate so in the plowshares peace and justice center garden um which is actually our most diverse garden there are four languages spoken in that garden there are only 25 gardeners in four languages it's kind of incredible wow. <laughs> but um anyway uh two of the people in that garden um contracted covid and the other gardeners came together to to cultivate the to, to harvest um the food that was ready from their plots and delivered it to their door um and then during the two weeks that that those people were isolating they were you know checking on their gardens and watering their gardens so that their crops didn't die um and then of course you know we um north coast opportunities has that access to to support for people isolating or who have been impacted by covid yeah thanks for that um and so this year has been difficult in so many ways and and one of the one of the big movements of this year, the Black Lives Matter movement, has also impacted our community in in a lot of ways. And we've seen a lot of organizations and businesses sort of come out and talk about what how they're addressing issues of social justice. Um, and the Gardens Project, I thought, um, did a really wonderful job publishing um, publishing a piece called "Hold Us Accountable." And so. In our last few minutes of this show, before we end with Dan Storm, could you describe what that what that document is about and and what it means to the Gardens Project? Yeah, thanks. Um, so we put a lot of thought into that. Of course, we you know we really were, we weren't comfortable with doing anything that was just um, optical and you know we really wanted to to consider what changes we we wanted to make and what gaps in our services we we had so we came together and um sifted through our narratives and our 
experiences in our um, in our data and and decided, you know, where you know what what aspects of our programming we were proud of, like the fact that we we do provide you know access to land and and leadership opportunities for for people of color. We we noticed where where we wanted to um, where we had gaps and where we wanted to reevaluate things. Like for example, we we noticed that it had it had been years since we had had a monolingual Spanish um, workshop, and that's something that we you know wanted to be working on. Um, and and also just you know pledging that when we do have money, which our program doesn't have tons and tons of money we're not throwing things around but um but that we would prioritize investing any capital that we had into those gardens that are um that are serving our BIPOC gardeners the most um we also noticed in going through that um you know all 56 gardens have volunteer management teams these are just incredible people who devote so much of their time and at first we said, okay, we, we think that the um, populations of the garden managers should reflect the greater population. And then we looked and we realized that um, six out of the 56 gardens had um, black garden managers. And we're like, oh, well, we wouldn't want to, like, really, well, if they actually reflected the community, we would have to fire people. <laughs> Definitely not doing that. And um, so, so anyway, that was, you know, somewhere where we noticed, like, actually, it's something to celebrate that we have, um, you know, more than half of the gardens are managed by, um, by women, and especially Latino women that we had um, this prevalence of, of black garden managers who were leaders in their community. And we felt really proud of that. The objective of this of this document is is really to do what what it says for for us to be held accountable for us to remember the pledges that we're making and um you know to continue to move forward toward a more just and equitable food system um through our platform nice all right um if you'd like to see that, uh, you can find it on the Gardens Project Facebook page, and I encourage you to do so. And we're going to end today's show um, with a video featuring Dan Storm. Um, so this will be in, in, in memorial of Dan Storm. If anyone out there remembers Dan Storm, he was, he's been a highlight in my experience in Mendocino County. And, and he was a community gardener, assistant garden manager with the State Street Community Garden. And so we're going to hear um, Dan Storm about his experience in the community gardens. And thanks for tuning into the Farm and Garden Show. Thank you so much, Lucy and Darcy. And we'll talk with you next month. Great. Thank you both so much. My name is Dan Storm. Uh, I've uh, been gardening all my life. 
I've been at the State Street Community Garden in Ukiah, California. This is my second year here, and this year I took on the volunteer position of uh, assistant to the garden manager. Um, I really love gardening more and more just because uh, I like to eat and I like to grow and I like to meet people. It didn't always start out that way. I remember dreading the first day of spring break because my dad would make me get up and start plowing the garden. But as I get older, um, I find myself coming back to gardening and uh, gardening more and more. Now I'm even uh, looking at it uh, potentially to do something on a, on a bigger, bigger scale. Actually, there's uh, multiple benefits of gardening. I, uh, first and foremost, eating good, healthy food. Uh, I know where it comes from. I know what goes into it. Um, it hasn't been radiated or uh, you know subjected to different chemicals. The other health benefits besides eating good food is uh, being outside. It gets you outside. It gets me away from the TV uh, or uh, the computer. And thinking back, my grandparents who gardened all their lives, they lived up until they were 90 and they would go out and work in the garden every day. I take a lesson out of my grandparents' book and I'm out here every day. And sure enough, after the gardening season this year I lost 15 pounds just from <laughs> being out here <laughs> you know? and as far as water management yeah yeah we are in in a drought situation but uh, for whatever my daily allotment of water would be I try to use it uh, just in the garden. I don't use that much myself per se. If we use the water sparingly and uh, grow drought resistant things, I, th I think we'll be all right. Of corn and it's a drought resistant type of corn. Uh, most challenges can be overcome with communication. And usually it's a lack of communication or a lack of um, knowledge. People grow up with, with an idea of, oh, this is the way it's supposed to garden. This is the way my parents garden or my grandparents garden. And yes, and they probably did have plentiful water at the time. So we have to adapt and we have to uh, make sure that everyone is informed about having a drip line, you know, set in. So with education and, uh, like I said, just talking to, to people, you know, usually that can be resolved. 